I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Welcome to episode 70 of the Weave Podcast. This week on the podcast, I'm talking with Stephanie L. Ando. Stephanie is a sustainable natural fiber artist who creates wool felt sculptures, hand-spun yarns, and one-of-a-kind botanically dyed textiles. She is the founder of Slow Fiber Studio, a project named after her married initials SLO, which can be read as slow, a hopeful word in the world that often moves too fast. Hey, Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Can you start out by introducing yourself and telling us about your background and how you found your way into the world of natural textiles? Sure, LaShawn. Um, so my name is Stephanie Ondo. Um, I'm a fiber artist, a hand spinner, a natural dyer, and sometimes I am a teacher um, teaching those things. Um, I have a very small business called Slow or SLO Fiber Studio, which I should say is no relation to um, Slow Fiber Studios, which is run by Yoshiko Wada. It's a totally different thing. Um, also, I'm an affiliate for Fibershed with Fibershed Carolinas, but I have not been active in that capacity for a few years. Um, let's see. Where does anyone's story start? <laughs> I was born on, Halloween, <laughs> born on Halloween morning, 1979, in Toledo, Ohio, and my dad was in the Navy. Um, we moved up and down the East Coast. So in 1991, we moved here to Charleston, South Carolina, where he ended up retiring. Um, so I went to middle school, high school, and my first two years of college year. In those two years, I changed majors from visual art to geology to anthropology with a minor in Japanese studies. So my third year of college, I spent um, as an exchange student in Japan, and I spent so much more time exploring than I did going to classes. <laughs> uh, that was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Um, but it also happened that near the end of my stay there, I had like my first real major depressive episode. So when I got back to the States, um, I kind of made a few half-hearted attempts to register for classes, you know, get back into the swing of things. But I just couldn't do it. I didn't really have the motivation or desire anymore. So those first uh, early years of my 20s, I was really lost and kind of shiftless and very much not sure what I was going to do with the rest of my life. Um, I guess I started getting into some unhealthy behaviors, like things most kids get out of their system in high school and college. But like this whole time I was doing stupid stuff, I was also doing things like uh, foraging for wild food, making soap, making kombucha, 
gardening, you know, growing like potatoes and green beans. Um, mm. Things that kind of grounded me and connected me to the natural world. And I'd like to think that's who I really am, you know, <laughs> even doing, during that um, dumb period. So anyway, I'm in my early 20s. And one day I mosey on over to this drum circle I heard about from my roommate. And this tall, skinny kid comes up and he introduces himself. And basically, we ran away to California together. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, we ran away with Disney on Ice to start selling cotton candy at their shows. But like after the first day of orientation at some stadium in North Carolina, I remember we went and we had this like duck dinner at a Chinese restaurant. And we decided that we probably are not the kind of people who could like sell cotton candy in earnest. So. He was raised in California, and so we asked his mom to buy us a ticket, so we greyhounded it out there. And then about six months Mm. later, we drive back to Charleston in a VW bus. And then we actually bounced back and forth, like, several times (laughs) between California (laughs) and Southern California. Um, And in between all that, I gave birth to two girls. (laughs) They... They're 13 and 15 now, and I still don't have a college degree. <laughs> uh, so maybe around 2007 or so, I was, but by then I was a single mom with a four-year-old and a one-year-old, and I was working full-time for a small company, like a great little family company, um, but the recession was hitting. So I'm watching all these people around me kind of, dropping away and wondering when it's my turn. And then it was my turn, but I was fortunately only like semi laid off. Um, Mm. They, they did it in a really, (laughs) they kind of did it in a, in a, in a way that they could like save some money, but still have me working part time. So I still had childcare and had all this time on my hands where I was kind of like, nervous not knowing if I should just bite the bullet and look for another job or if I should just trust that everything would blow over you know and I could return to full-time work um so to keep myself busy I was trying all these different crafts and then I found knitting and I fell really hard for knitting uh I was still very very insular then um not many friends. So I taught myself from like YouTube and this really great, like shiny black book. It's called Dominatrix Whip Your Knitting Into Shape. And that caught my eye at the library. So it, it was a good beginner knitting book. Um, very quickly, I, I came to prefer natural fibers. And then because I like need to know everything I need to know how things work why they are the way they are I wanted to know where these yarns came from how they're made um and that got me into spinning and then dyeing. how did you go about learning how to do these things and creating your business uh well I I just fell so in love with knitting and then spinning that 
probably about six months uh, or so after I began to spin, I kind of started a little shop on um, on Etsy. I was selling hand spun yarn and hand carded bats that I made on a little drum carter. And I guess I was pretty active in the Etsy sellers groups at that time and just learning all I could about it. And um, I was dyeing roving with Jacquard and um, other professional acid dyes. Um, so, yeah, I dabbled in some like pre-reduced indigo, but it used really strong chemicals and they were really stinky and gross. So I kind of backed away from dyeing for a while. I found, you know, uh, after I was really thinking about my love of nature and kind of learning about some natural dye methods, I really couldn't reconcile those practices with the ideals that I was, you know, espousing. Let's see, getting into my business. Well, so that was kind of the first iteration of the business. And then I met, I met the man who is now my husband after a while of kind of not being involved in fiber arts. I did start getting back into dyeing. Only this time the dyeing was just natural, natural dyes from the start. So my husband is a passionate gardener and plant lover. And I think the dyeing is another layer in my relationship with plants and with him. Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, when we got married, my initials became SLO, and I think it was just pretty serendipitous because by then I was already interested in the um, slow food movement and slow fibers, and I thought it was pretty cool that you could pronounce my initials as slow. So I actually called my little business Slow Yarn and Fiber for a year or two and I changed it last year to slow fiber studio to kind of reflect a, a shift in focus um, to take the weight off of the yarn aspect and leave room for textiles in general. And do you have a physical studio or shop that you work out of? No, unless you call our little apartment, my studio, <laughs> which I guess it is. Yeah. Um, Every every part of our apartment has something related to to what I do. I live with a very patient family. That's awesome. Do you <laughs> do you all work together on projects? Oh gosh, I wish I wish that we did. Um, I mean, it would be lovely to say that everybody in my family is involved in all these different aspects of of my business. Um, you know, when I when I was doing lots of dyeing of cotton yarn a couple of years ago, like my daughters would, I'd have them skein it up into the skeins. Um, and I'd pay them a couple dollars per skein, but right now they're just teenagers and they're kind of too cool for all that. And my husband calls it all <laughs> yarning. Like <laughs> I think he just kind of does that to push it back. <laughs> but That's I know that. So funny. Yeah. They do. Yeah, they are proud of me. They they do support me. And it's it's all in loving jest, I think, when he calls it yarning. So <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens in the future. 
<laughs> and I I see that you also grow um, indigo souk Kosa. Are you growing in or near your apartment? Are you a part of a partnership in, in growing your plants? Okay, sure. So, well, um, I actually, that Sofruticosa that you've seen online is actually an educational field here on Johns Island, which is about 30 minutes outside downtown Charleston. It's not at my apartment. I am very, very lucky and honored to be part of this collection of people, not just women, actually. I was about to say women, people that are um, stewards for this field. It's a project of the ICIC, mm-hmm. the International Center for Indigo Culture, that was founded by Donna Hardy of Sea Island Indigo. And, I'm, and I know you, you've talked with her Um recently i think um yeah i did actually yeah um so they they recently voted me onto the board as well and i i could not be more excited but i'm stepping into some very big shoes um it's (laughs) these particular plants were started from seed by lee magar who's also a member and we planted them out with some volunteers and rose a couple months ago. Yeah, so it, that is not my personal field. I wish I had land, but I, I certainly don't. It's interesting that you mentioned Donna Hardy because um, after I spoke with her, after we had our conversation, when she was on the podcast, she mm-hmm. put me in touch with um, Boone Hall oh, Plantation. Cool. And that was how I was able to source the indigo sufuricosa seeds that I'm growing. Can you can you talk about how you guys are growing the seeds and uh, maybe some of the significance of the seeds that you're growing? Sure. Well, um, so how we're growing them, we have there's a landowner uh, here on Johns Island who is kind of kind of neighbors with Lee, so she was able to speak with him and um, basically he's. Um, donating part of his property to us to be able to grow this educational field on. Now I'm very new to the ICIC and I I wouldn't want to, I don't feel like I can speak with very much authority. Um, Indigo in the low country is very loaded culturally. Um, There's a lot of um, deep history with it. that's dark and um, a lot of racial aspects to it. Um, and I, I really think that if people were to listen to your interview with Donna Hardy, she's, she's more eloquent in speaking about it. So as far as the significance, I think that's probably a good way to point to your conversation with her. But what I can say generally, what we're trying to do with this field is bring it back into the public eye as the beautiful, wonderful, natural resource that it is and um, not not try to strip it away from its connotations of enslavement and um, slave labor, but point to it as a plant that um, has potential here to give us natural color without the environmental impact that 
uh, man-made colors have because they're made from petrochemicals. It's something that I guess part of the hope is that it can um, bring people together and um, show them the good that that it can bring. Yeah, that's that's really awesome. I hope so. <laughs> so what is the surrounding textile community like in Charleston? Well, uh, that's a really good question. It's, um, to me personally, it doesn't feel like it's very cohesive. It doesn't really feel like a total community. Like there are little pockets of different textile focus, but there doesn't seem to be a whole much of cross communication. Like, I think that's changing slowly. Um, for instance, there's lots of knitting meetups. You can, you can go online and find places to go knit somewhere every day of the week. But weirdly, for the last several years, until just recently, we, we have not had a knit shop in town. Um, until this new one opened in Mount Pleasant, it's called Wild and Wooly. And the lady that runs it is, adorable and has has done a lot with her little shop so far um we do have a fiber arts guild it's called palmetto fiber arts guild i think they meet about once a month and they've got weaving a weaving group that meets maybe once or twice a month but i've only been to that as a as a guest a couple times there are some really amazing small batch fashion designers here that i've had the honor to meet and interact with personally. So I've mentioned Lee Magar a couple times. She's one of them. Um, her business is called Madam Magar and she designs cuts and sews these beautiful frocks, she calls them, that she sells out of a, a store here locally called Worthwhile. And she actually dyes, dyes them with her own indigo. And another lady named Gina Roberts, um, she has a business called Brooke Wilder Atelier. We got together recently and did a really fun little um, fresh leaf indigo and salt uh, squish squish dye into fabric. So I'm I'm looking forward to see what she creates with that cloth. Oh, I I feel like maybe not very many people know about this, but we are pretty blessed here in the Low Country to have. Um, the only mill in America, um, you might want to fact check me on that, but I'm pretty sure it's right, that actually produces wool top as opposed to wool roving. Um, and if your listeners, they may or may not know, they're hand spinners. Top is where all the fibers are combed and really, really well aligned to give you a worsted yarn um, as opposed to roving, which is what most of us um, know about even if we don't spin and that's where they're kind of just carded or brushed and they're really floofy but not quite so they don't it doesn't make a shiny yarn it makes like a a, a warm fluffy yarn so that's surprisingly mm. close to charleston it's only about an hour away um in the francis marion forest it's called chargeurs wool c-h-a-r-g-e-u-r-s and I still need to take a field trip there. Um, oh, oh my God. Okay. And I would really be, I would be letting so many people down if I did not mention one of our 
very culturally significant textile arts here. It is the weaving of sweet brass baskets. This mm-hmm. is an art that came directly mm-hmm. from Africa with in, in the hands of enslaved people who were, who were forcibly brought here and, um, and who formed the roots of modern Gullah culture. These baskets uh, are intricate and labor intensive and absolute works of art. So um, the textile community, it's a lot of different little things here and there. It's slowly becoming more cohesive, I would like to think. But that's it in a nutshell. That's super interesting. I'm new to the area, so I moved out here last year. And I haven't been able to tap into a lot of, you know, a textile community. And I'm kind of curious if you can speak to, like, the history of, like, textiles in South Carolina. Because there was a point in time when this was a place where there were a bunch of textile mills and a lot of, you know, um, industrial textile making and things happening, which I think probably also has a lot to do with the history of cotton in the area and indigo. But I I guess I'm wondering, since you've been here for longer than I have, were you around when there was, uh, when the textile scene was, was more popular and like, were you, did you see the changes happen? I, I didn't see changes happen LaShawn because I was probably just 10 or 15. So like um mm-hmm. I probably was at the at the end of that era here just not aware um and I totally I'm totally interested in what in the um issue that you're bringing up too because this this was a big textile region this in North Carolina and um in fact I I almost feel like um North Carolina just in my in my tiny brain, it feels like North Carolina is even more of a, or was more of a textile center. Um, I don't know too many details, so I cannot speak too much to that, except to tell you that um, in my little bit of researching um, resources as a Fibershed affiliate, I did come across a an organization that's called Carolina Textile District, and they're based in North Carolina, and um, they're they're amazing. Basically, they're uh, an organization that connects growers with makers, with designers, with all the other people involved in the textile um, production chain. So they're the people they kind of act as almost like a clearinghouse. Um, if you want to get something dyed, you can go to them and they can connect you with dyers in the Carolinas. Um, they can connect you with people that are growing cotton here. And hopefully a, a mill that's spinning as well. Although I don't personally know where that mill would be, but um, I think we're starting to see it a, uh, a small resurgence. Also, the fact that um, we here in South Carolina um, are just in the beginning stages of growing industrial hemp, um, which would be totally amazing mm-hmm. if we get that mm-hmm. as a well. Yeah. Although, 
as far as I know, I mean, I haven't seen very much in the way of interest in its fiber. I think, I mean, my impression so far is just that the growers are more interested in producing oil and like seeds for more um, food purposes or health purposes. But I would love to see that um, that fiber used as well. Yeah. Yeah, I've actually I noticed that as well. Um, most yeah. of the hemp conversation has been more geared towards the food system as opposed to the fiber system, mm-hmm. uh, which I think really a lot of popular conversations surrounding agriculture tend to focus on the food system, which is understandable. Um, yeah. But yeah, I would definitely love to see more interest and more development in fiber farming, but also in in alternative fibers to our system, such as like hemp and flax. Yeah, and I think that um, a lot of us in the fiber world um, realize really now that um, after the after the slow foods conversation kind of became mainstream, that that's definitely the route we can take. Um, you know, showing the general public that the benefits of slow food and organic practices and, and, you know, reminding them, hey, if you're putting it in your body, you know, if you're putting it on your body, it's also affecting you personally just as much as the food you eat. And it's affecting the planet just as much as, you know, the food that we're growing. So I think I think we'll get there. It's probably going to be another decade or two um, before the slow fibers is kind of more mainstream and accepted. But I'd like to think that we're going in the right direction. Yeah, I agree. Can you talk about indigo dyeing workshops and their prevalence? And, you know, what are some of the things that you've noticed as someone who participates in the workshopping of natural textiles and indigo dyeing? Sure. Um, So as far as I know, like I've never met a person that doesn't love the color blue, right? I mean, it's like that all the shades that you can get from indigo, indigo, sorry, it's they're the most beautiful blues. Like the colors just vibrate through your eyeballs to that part of your brain. It's like, enlightened and like filled with awe (laughs) and that's why I love it so much but (laughs) so there seems to be like this indigo renaissance happening you know like as far as just from what I see online just in Charleston but also kind of in general and maybe it's because I follow indigo so closely I mean I could be wrong but it lots of people are really interested in it and they feel good about it because it's natural. So there are lots of people holding indigo classes and these workshops that are maybe like one or two hours long. I mean, there are so many people that seem to be doing this. And LaShawn, I'm pretty sure they are for the most part well-intentioned. But the thing is, they're doing indigo and the public a disservice because that short time, the, the format of the workshops, just one or two hours, tells me that they're most likely using strong chemicals to reduce the VAT. And most times, and, and I've been to 
at least one workshop where this was definitely true. Um, as participants were not e- even involved in the process of creating the VAT, there were just, you know, three strong VATs ready to go. And then you've got a group of people together and you give them some cotton fabric and you let them fold it up into some shibori patterns. And then all the students, you know, pull the fabric out of the VAT. And then there's this incredible yellow green color, like antifreeze color. And you can see that oxidize right before your eyes into this amazing dark blue. And you're like, oh, ah, wow, this is so magic. And this comes from a plant. But this is a misrepresentation of indigo's beauty. And I think it's a profane way to work with indigo's properties um, because although it purports to be natural, it still feeds into the whole concept of instant gratification and like getting more for less. So for one thing, you may have like dipped into a synthetic vat, which was made from petrochemicals and then further reduced with dangerous chemicals that should not be in your lungs or on your skin or in our water. But even if this workshop instructor has used real indigo pigment from plants, how do you know that it wasn't reduced with those things um, to create a quick reduction for a fast class? So um, my feelings about indigo, now that I've begun to use it in different forms and research its various cultural traditions and experiment with different extraction methods, is that it's a relationship you have to cultivate. You have to take the time to develop and honor it. You cultivate the plants. You learn not just the chemistry of how the pigment forms or changes to blue as it breathes oxygen. You learn patience. How to create a vat Mm -hmm. using only the plant. And you use something to make it alkaline, like maybe slaked lime or wood ash water. And something, maybe a little something to feed the bacteria that are fermenting the plant and taking the oxygen out of the water. Fructose from plants, wheat bran, henna, maybe. Anyway, this is why I don't trust a quick workshop. It really gives a false impression of instant gratification. Where really there should be respect for the vat and patience while it goes through its cycle. It takes time. And it has to be nurtured. If you can't tell, the more faster, cheaper mindset just honestly disgusts me. <laughs> and indigo is a metaphor for living lightly, basically, versus like perching on top of a great big pile of acquisitions. So that's that's where I am. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I understand that. And we actually had someone on the podcast a few weeks ago. Um, her name was Rebecca. And she uh, was talking about how she no longer did natural dime demos because um, similar to the reasons that you're stating. And mm-hmm. also because um, there is this sort of, hmm, how could I word it? You know, indigo is, is a sacred plant 
and the cultivation, the fermentation mm-hmm. of it is is sacred for a lot of cultures and a lot of people. They use different things uh, to bring yes. it together. And so there is sort there's definitely been this like natural textile movement that has taken on a life of its own, not really honoring the, the history and the work that a lot of these indigo masters and or natural dye masters that have doing have been doing for a long time. Um, yes. Yes. So yeah, it is, it's really interesting that you say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a good way to put it, too. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So do you have any new projects that you're working on? Um, I do. Well, um, I am growing some dye plants at home. So apart from that, it's a fruticosa field that we talked about earlier. I do have Japanese indigo uh, growing both at our apartment and in a, um, a plot at a local community garden. My husband and I each have a, a little... Um, four by eight plot next to each other. So he's got his tomatoes and uh, seasonal vegetables. And then I, I've got my dye plants in mine. Um, and so mm-hmm. that's proving to be really fun for just taking little clippings here and there and doing fresh leaf um, indigo or printing with eucalyptus, which I've got a little eucalyptus shrub growing there and matter root too. I just planted, planted matter root this spring and, um, Oh, my God, I'm just lucky that it survived. Actually, my cat knocked every single little grow pot over the day after I planted those seeds. Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) I had 20 seeds to start with, and he knocked them all off the the windowsill. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) But that's so basically like the rest of my family is like, you know, on their phones, reading their books, drinking their coffee, and it's a Sunday morning, and I was just sitting there for, like, two hours straight just picking through the carpet to (laughs) find the seeds and replant them. (laughs) But it worked, and my little raised bed looks great. So, you know, that's going to be a time investment because it takes a few years to really get a red from matter root, Mm -hmm. although Mm -hmm. I'll be able to get some nice coral colors. Um, What else? Well, I've got a little research uh slash writing project that i've been stewing on for a while and oh right um i'm also starting to work on several pieces of um, non-functional art that will feature my own hand spinning and and dyes so instead of just turning out hand spun yarns for the farmer's market um like i normally do like for instance uh so i've got two little cotton plants growing in front of our apartment. And I would love to be able to uh, use those, but it's not like I can continuously spin skeins and skeins of cotton. So um, the little bit of cotton that I will get, I'll spin, but then use it kind of like stitching in a piece of fiber art or the little bits of indigo that I actually grow myself. I'll use, you know, on these hanging uh, fiber art, etc. So that there's there's value in that in in that very slow process itself. I mean, like the total uh, the total pr- cotton that I'll get for the entire year could maybe weave like a, a square yard of fabric, and I'm not going to be able to sell it 
that square yard of fabric for like ten thousand dollars and be like, yeah, I made my, I made you know a third of my year back for for this these two <laughs> cotton pants. So just to be able to use this little bits really like like I did this. I scratched in the dirt. I grew this. I spun this. I dyed this with my own dye plant. I want to be able to give those things their due. And so I won't just throw them into my everyday stuff that I sell at the market. Um, that's the main project for me is really creating some very personal, um, non-functional art for beauty's sake. Wow, that's awesome. So where can people go on social media and the Internet to follow your work? Um, I have a website that I really don't update nearly enough. I like at all. Maybe I updated it a tiny bit a couple weeks ago. It's uh, slowfiberstudio.com, but slow is S-L-O. And but I'm most active on Instagram. Um, I'm so visual, and I, I love Instagram. And my handle there is S-L-O underscore fiber underscore studio. And my email address is slowfiberstudio at gmail.com. Awesome. So before you go, we have a question that we ask all of our podcasts, and that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Sure. Um, Let people know what you're up to. Um, Reach out to other makers in your community. Ask questions. Try to meet people in person. I was very, very uh insular like just I have a really hard time talking to people or I should say I, I used to um I was very much like that for far too long just learning on the internet learning from books but it was all by myself and it was not really until I started sharing my work on Instagram that I actually began connecting with people locally and far away who share my passion for spinning and natural dyes, I would say share share with the world and you'll you'll attract your tribe. Awesome. That's amazing. Thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you for having me. It was a blast. That's a wrap. If you are interested in finding out ways to support Stephanie's work, you can find links to her website at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 70. Next week on the podcast, Sarah is talking to Ali Rousseau. Ali is a tapestry weaver in Montreal, Canada, who uses bold blocks of color in her weaving. So stay tuned next week for that episode. And until next time, happy weaving!